morning, church, and welcome to the fifth part five of the Love series. Love part five. And today our topic is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And um, the scripture that we've been uh, spending a lot of time in is uh, 1 Corinthians 4 and 5. It says this, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. Last week we did, it is not easily angered. And this week it keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So that's our topic today, looking at forgiveness. Um, the, the Greek word that's within that phrase is logizomai, the key word, logizomai. Let me uh, give you the actual explanation of the word, the original Greek word. Logizomai, it is properly used of one, numerical calculation, or two, metaphorically, a reckoning of characteristics or reason to take into account. Um, I like the way the message version really sums it up by translating it this way. Love does not keep score of the sins of others. Love does not keep score of the sins of others. And perhaps to um, give a little bit more of uh, uh, insight here, I'll quote from um, a theologian. Uh, Leon Morris is possibly the most... uh, famous of any of our Australian theologians. There he is in his office. He's passed away now. He's uh, not with us, but uh, that's uh, that's very much who who he was. It's a great picture of him. Um, Leon Morris um, uh, has spent most of his time in Australia, but he did also study in Britain and serve in Britain as well. He's written about 50 theological works and uh, of those books, to be honest, um, you know, you've got a narrow field when you're a theologian. It's Bible colleges, Students of Bible colleges and pastors who buy your books, and that's about it. Not many other people buy them. But nevertheless, he's managed to sell over two million books. Uh, he's a very prestigious man, a prestigious intellect. Um, and he's, he's an evangelistic guy too. Like he was the chairperson of the Billy Graham campaign when Billy Graham was here in 69. So, you know, he's a strong evangelical, evangelistic Christian, not just a theologian. Um, and he actually, uh, for the latter years of his life, so he lived not too far from here, lived in Doncaster, last years of his life. Uh, but let me quote from him and what he says about this passage. He states, love keeps no record of wrongs. Paul uses the verb logizomai in the sense of reckoning of righteous accounts, noting something down and reckoning it to someone. Love does not take notice of every sinful thing that people do and hold it against them. Love does not tally up people's sin it does not harbor a sense of being injured by someone you got the idea and um you know it's uh, at its simplest it's keeping a record in your mind of the things that person or that community or that organization has done against you what paul is saying is actually love doesn't do that if you've got that agape love in operation in your life you're able to let it go And I know it goes against human nature. Our most natural thing is when someone does something against us, we're cranky with them. We want to get them back or we certainly are thinking about it, you know. But actually, this passage is saying we need to let it go. Let me uh, read a further explanation. Love does not keep a record of wrongs or hold somebody in debt because they consider that person has sinned against them. You know, in the Hebrew culture, when someone has sinned against you, they were considered in your debt. The idea is they've tallied up a score. You've got a record of things they have done wrong. They are in your debt, not financial debt, but they are in your debt spiritually. This is the way they used to look at it. And this would explain why Jesus teaches his his followers of the time to pray in this way. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer. 
Um, Matthew 6, 9, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And notice this. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Like I said, it's not about finance. It's about being in debt because of uh, someone sinned against you. They're in your debt. You're tallying up a score of things they have done wrong against you. Jesus taught us to pray, you've got to forget about people's debts against you. Let them go. And God will also forget about the debts that you have, that he has against you for things you've done wrong. And if you're not sure it's about forgiveness, notice what Jesus says immediately after the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6.14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. My goodness, what a statement. Ever noticed that before? That if we're holding on to unforgiveness, a tally, a score against someone else, things they have done wrong to us and we can't let it go, Jesus there says the most strong, it could not be said more strongly, could it? If you're not prepared to forgive people, God in heaven's not going to forgive you either. Man, why does he make it so strong? Well, let me suggest this. It's because he knows humans do not cope carrying unforgiveness, carrying a list of people's wrongs against them. Holding on to negative emotions damages us psychologically. It damages our emotions. It's not good for us. And Jesus is trying to say in the strongest possible terms, let it go. Whatever it is, let it go. Don't carry it around. Matthew 18, 21 says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. You know, in the Jewish culture, it was thought that a righteous person would forgive someone three times. It's not in the Bible. It's just that was their culture. A righteous person, they'll forgive someone up to three times when they do something against them. Peter thinks, well, that's pretty safe. I'm going to up at the seven. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven or 77 times, depending on the translation. In other words, Jesus is saying, you just got to keep doing it. You keep on forgiving. You keep on forgiving. You keep on forgiving. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, stay in a situation where you are being emotionally or physically harmed. I'm not saying that. Get out of that situation. Absolutely. But what Jesus is saying here is you've got to let go of the stack of the list of sins that person has committed against you let it go because it will damage you if you carry it around one of the passages that jesus uses as a parable to really illustrate this and it's got a lot of psychological truths in it i believe is matthew 18 23 let me read this story this is parable therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants as he began the settlement a man who owed him 10,000 talents, or we could, some translations say 10,000 bags of gold, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. Let's try and get our head around this a little bit. It's a big debt. Um, just imagine you pop into your, your local bank, those of you with mortgages, and, uh, you, 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 and all of a sudden your bank manager says, you know what, I've cancelled your mortgage, it's paid. 
you're off the hook. You don't owe us, you don't owe us cent. Now, that would sound pretty nice. That, that would be very welcome information. Pretty unbelievable, but that, that would be very, very cool. Well, it's a thousand times that. I mean, seriously, this is a massive debt that this guy's just been forgiven. Uh, let me read the passage further. Verse 23, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a thousand, a hundred silver coins, as some translations will put it. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell at his knees and begged him, be patient with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Now, you got the picture? The, the man has been, his massive debt has been cancelled. He's got a fellow servant that also has a debt. It's a fair bit. It's not a small amount of money. It's a um, uh, hundred denarii. Uh, a denarii was approximately a labourer's day's salary. Today in Melbourne, the average labourer's pay per hour is 30 bucks, or per day is $228. So he owes him, in today's terms, about 23000 bucks. It's not a small amount. Okay, you would want that paid back, wouldn't you, normally? But this is an unusual circumstance. He has just had a massive debt cancelled, and he's acting like it hasn't been cancelled. Still wanting to get this other guy's money off him. Let me um, explain it like this. 6,000 denarii made one talent. 6,000 denarii made one talent. He owed 10,000 talents. It would have ta- on the labourer's salary, it would have taken him 20 years to pay back one talent. He owes 10,000 talents. It's a phenomenal amount of money. Um, I had a chap in England when I was over there and happened to preach from this passage and uh, he worked it out, what it would be in British terms. He said it's equivalent to 3.4 trillion pounds. 3.4 trillion pounds uh, and and he added twice the UK's national debt. (laughs) In our terms, it's $7 trillion. $7 trillion Australian. So the debt, he would never be able to pay that debt back. He's just been forgiven it all. And yet he's angry with this other guy and insisting it be paid back when, oh, yeah, it's significant. I'm not saying it's not significant, but when you're being forgiven that much, that is a weird attitude to be carrying. He's acting like he's never been forgiven the debt. Can I suggest this, friends? The king is a representation of Jesus who has cancelled our debt of sin. Um, We're encouraged to forgive because of how much the master has forgiven us. That's the point of the parable. So as I walk over here to the cross, we've just had communion today. We've remembered afresh and anew all that Jesus has forgiven us. All of us had accumulated a debt, a debt of sin against Jesus, a massive debt. He's wiped it all away for all who come to believe in him as the divine son of God and invite him into their lives and are willing to follow him. That debt has gone. He's wiped it away. And yes, there are people who sin against us. And it's not trivial, just as 23,000 bucks is not trivial. But in comparison, it is very small. Jesus' point is, why are you not forgiving your fellow servants? Considering how much he has forgiven us. The, The passage continues, 832. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. 
I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Boy. There it is again. He's saying you must forgive people. You don't forgive people, your heavenly father will treat you like the master treated that servant. He's going to be thrown into prison and tortured. It's really a picture of hell, isn't it? It's eternal. He's never going to pay that debt back. Can I suggest this, friends? In application number three, I believe there's a psychological truth here. Carrying unforgiveness in your heart can torture you. Carrying unforgiveness in your heart can torture you. Now, I'm going to be really frank. Of course, Please do not hear me making this a simple thing. I know how hard it is. It's very hard to let, you know, if you've been injured by someone, emotionally, physically, in some other sort of form, it is very, very hard to forgive. I'm not saying it's not. Of course it is. It's very, very hard. It's in human nature not to forgive. It's in human nature to repay evil for evil. It's in human nature to get them back for what they've done. It's in human nature to carry around those hurts because it's just how we're made in this, how we are in this fallen world. But Jesus has come to bring transformation. And because of the work on the cross, he can bring that transformation. When I was talking about um, anger management, I mentioned uh, there are some great resources there to help us understand ourselves. And um, there's a, a chap He's one of my favourite authors on these sort of topics is David Siemens. Um, Healing of Memories is one I've been just looking at this week. Great book. Um, he has another one here I'm about to quote from. This is Healing of Wounded Emotions. If you're thinking, how can I get a handle on this sort of topic better, or the previous one I spoke uh, last week on anger management, his, his material is excellent. So David Siemens, Healing of Memories, or um, this one here, Healing of Damaged Emotions. Great books. Um, you can order that one through Korong. Um, let me quote from the book that's up there now. It says this. He, he speaks of this passage. So he's a theologian, preacher, as, all, as well as a psychologist. He says, um, in reference to this passage, if we feel anger at ourselves, we say, I must pay in full. Or we feel anger against someone else. He or she must pay. In this way, the whole inexorable process is set in motion as the personality is turned over to the inner tormentors. They are the jailers who work as debt collectors in this awful prison. Jesus is saying that the unforgiven and the unforgiving will get turned over to the fearsome foursome, as he puts it, turned over to guilt, resentment, striving and anxiety those emotional things will torment you a sense of guilt or of resentment or of striving or of anxiety they become the tormentors and this is why it's so important to be able in his strength to let unforgiveness go to let that score of people's sins against you or it might be your own, your own self, that sense of failure and guilt that you're carrying around. In other words, you feel that you, 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 you're dealing with your own issues there. So important to let it go. When Jesus uh, explains how do you deal with it when someone 
has done something against you. He says this, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And in that last comment, when he says, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, he's really just saying, treat them as an unchurched person, someone who doesn't know the Lord. Doesn't, he's not saying, be mean to them. He's just saying, you're going to have to treat them in a different category if they're still not going to repent. But what he's saying here is, it's a little process. But really, generally speaking, the process can be nipped in the bud with the first step. Go to the person. Have a chat with the person. Have a coffee with the person. You know, um, I've been in conferences for years, and they all at different times, and they've regularly when they're talking this type of topic that passage always gets quoted you know if you have an issue with someone the first step is to talk with them one-on-one you've got an issue with someone the first step is to talk with them one-on-one what not to do you know if you have an issue with someone the biblical pattern was not to complain about them at a members meeting the biblical pattern was not to write on a scroll a complaint about them to the elders of the church. You know, the biblical pattern was to go to the person. That was the first step. And there are certainly not so much in this church I haven't found, but I've seen in churches where that's the last thing people want to do. They will do those very things. They'll write a letter to the church leadership or the elders, or they'll, you know, um, they'll, they'll grumble about something at a members' meeting, having not ever even talked to the person about it. You know, crazy stuff. And yet, here we see the biblical pattern. You've got an issue with someone? Go and have a chat with them about it. Go and have a chat with them about it. It says in Romans um, 13, 8 through 10, let no debt remain outstanding except the continual debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. Finally, can I suggest before even the step of going to the person is this foundation, number five, the foundation of forgiveness is love. The foundation of forgiveness is love, even before the one-to-one thing. Because, you know, I think a lot of the one-to-one, people get their um, noses out of joint, for want of a better phrase, sometimes because simply because they don't feel love. They don't feel the community, could be church community that they're in, um, it could be a workplace, it can be whatever, but they just don't feel loved. And so they much more easily have an issue with someone over something sometimes that can be quite trivial. Uh, perhaps um, let me say something further about it by quoting Peter, First Peter 4 8. It says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. You see, sometimes those little things that can irk you. If there's that atmosphere of love in your heart, in your church, in your community, where your, your workplace or wherever it might be, that's amazing how suddenly those issues are not nearly so big because the atmosphere of love is there. Let me give an example of this. Um, there was a, a lady in one of my churches in Sydney. She wrote Pamela and I quite a nasty letter, an actual physical letter, um, very critical of us. And we were pretty annoyed about it, you know. Um, and... Um, it was very unjustified however we prayed about it and you know what we felt we felt their issue wasn't the issue her issue was she just didn't feel people were loving and accepting and valuing her in the church and so what we did we thought well let's let's write her a, a note expressing how much we appreciate her 
uh, how much we value her, the good qualities in, in her character and personality, and bought her a bunch of flowers. We've got any flowers up here? I don't think we have some flowers on the screen. Any flowers there? And left that on her doorstep. Well, we got a voicemail back from her, back in the days when people had landline voice messages. Don't do that much anymore, do we? Um, and we, we got this voicemail back and her saying, oh, thank you so much for that card and the flowers. I don't know why I wrote that note. I didn't really mean those things. I don't know. I've just been in a strange place at the moment. You know, and she just expressed herself like that. Um, I think the, the, the issue was not the issue. The issue was she didn't feel loved. And sometimes that is the case. And if we can try and create, as a church, an atmosphere of love, that love would be a value of the church, this agape love we read about in the Bible, instead of carrying a list of wrongs, allowing God to supernaturally deliver us from that, we create an exceptional environment. The environment that Paul is trying to tell us, hey, tell the Corinthian church, you need to be a church of love. We've looked at five different points. Jesus encourages us to be constantly forgiving people. We are encouraged to forgive because of how much the master has forgiven us. Carrying unforgiveness in your heart can torture you. If you have an issue with someone, talk with them one-on-one. And finally, the foundation of forgiveness is love. Five important points. Now, I'm not, I don't want to be seen as trivialising people's pain. Because I realise some of you have been through the most horrendous of experiences. You may have had someone who has treated you so badly. It's so hard to get over it. You are emotionally scarred. You may be physically scarred. You know, I realise that that can be the case for some of you. So I'm not trying to say, hey, you know, this is, this is all easy. No, it's not. It's not easy. It's not easy. But in the journey of talking about this, friends, my emphasis is this. If you can allow God to come in and supernaturally set you free, it is of great benefit for you. It's not actually hurting the other person holding on to the unforgiveness. You know? What does Nicky Gumbel say in one of his stories? Carrying around unforgiveness is like uh, getting some poison and drinking it yourself. <clears throat> Let me finish with a, a final story because I'm going to ask a question. It's not just about forgiving yourself and forgiving others. What about forgiving God? What about forgiving God? You had these hopes and dreams and he hasn't realised them. You had these big prayers that you wanted answered and he didn't answer them. Well, he did, said no. Um, You know, you you feel let down. Remember that book, Philip Yancey? Um, Disappointed with God. It's a bestseller. So with a title like that, you know people feel disappointment with God. It's a reality. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it is a reality of human nature. I've got a story I'm going to share with you, but this is more of an M-rated story. So I'm wondering for, I think being 16, you'd be fine. I'm wondering for your boys whether it might be a bit much. Um, anyway, so we go. Leave it up to you. Your call. There's no, I don't go into graphic details in the story, but it is certainly an M-rated story. About a friend of mine, uh, as, as many of you are aware, I, I uh, planted a church called uh, Crossway South many years ago. I think it was 2005 we launched that one. Um, we'd spent a fair bit of dough on an uh, advertising campaign for the church, about uh, $7,000 with the local newspapers. Had a great deal with um, the Star newspaper 
fantastic. They would not only put the ad in, we had a quarter page ad regularly going in for our church, advertising special things or the church in general, but they would always do an editorial. I got to know the editor. And so she would always do an editorial for me as well, which was great. So we'd have two, two things in the paper every time. Anyway, with all of that seven grand's worth of advertising going out through the newspapers, and of course it's online as well, we got a lot of visitors. You know, people were coming in the church all the time or calling up the church or getting emails. Well, one of the emails was this one. It's from a, a young lady called Darshani. She shot me an email and she said, um, she, had, oh, she had a whole list of questions about the church. And I said, a lot of questions there. <laughs> Great to receive your email. What do you think? I'll just give you a phone call. It might be easy just to chat about the stuff. Um, so I popped my mobile on the email and said, or if you want, send me your mobile. I'm happy to call you. Uh, next day or two, I got, got her mobile, gave her a call. And so she, we chatted at length. And, uh, yeah, she had... Uh, quite a story to tell and she just wanted to know that would this church be a place where she could fit would this be a church where she would feel safe and uh, I actually really think it was I think it was the right church for her and it turned out indeed it was it was a good fit for her and so she started coming to church you know church is pretty new at the time um, she had she bought a new home. She has quite a, quite a nice place, quite a big living area. So she started hosting one of our Bible study groups. Uh, she's a keyboardist, so she's part of our worship team and active in uh, hospitality. She's a great cook, um, Indian lady. And um, anyway, uh, she really settled in well. And she's a beautiful spirit. You're very gentle, very gently spoken, uh, very positive person. Very seemed to carry a real joy with her. Very pretty girl. And on the outside, you would never know. Let me tell you her story. She shared this with our church after she'd been there for some years when I was speaking on unforgiveness. I got her up to share a testimony, and I have in other churches as well. When she was younger, just finished, uh, just graduated uni in 1997, she was working as a teacher in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. And uh, let's have a look at the city. And um, she was a committed Christian young woman. Um, and newly married, her first husband. Um, I'll tell the story of her other husband in a moment. Um, she uh, was active in church, regularly attending church, active with Bible studies, actively doing ministries. Wednesday night, her and her new husband uh, left the Bible study, and uh, it's about 8.30, and as they're driving home, one of the problems in Port Moresby is the rascals. Um, criminals, basically. They often live in the settlements out on the edge of the city and they come in as the night goes on and get up to all sorts of criminal activity. Well, they're driving home uh, in their car and out of nowhere comes this other car and blocks their way. Five men are in the car. Four or so of them get out and all, they've all got guns. Um, her husband uh, jumps out of the driver's seat and runs away. She didn't get that chance. They pile in the car and start driving. She said, as we were driving along, um, I was at peace. I thought, look, I'm the apple of God's eye. The Lord's not going to let anything happen to me. And she said, there'll be a roadblock or something. The police will stop the car and I'll get out. Not far into the drive, the two, two of the men pulled her over the back seat and she was raped. As they continued driving towards the outskirts of the city, um, they got uh, further and further out and she was still just saying, the Lord, I've heard the story so many times, the Lord will 
Bring an angel into the scenario and I'll be rescued. Well, eventually they drove into the suburb of Marata. Let's have a look at the outskirts here. This is kind of the edge of the city. Marata is kind of a settlement area. You can't see the settlements here. You can just see the country. But Marata was right on the fringe of the city and it was such a high crime rate there, even the police wouldn't go there. She realised once they'd arrived there, she was not going to be rescued. The car was parked, kind of the edge of where the mountains are, and uh, as she was taken out of the car, she was raped again. Then she was walked up one of these mountains, could be that very one, because this is in the area. And um, she was kind of there, you know, with these, I think it's just a couple of men at this time, just kind of sitting there. And um, she said to them, look, could I go now, please? Can I go now? They didn't really answer that question. And then her heart sank as she saw 10 or 12 more men turned up, part of their gang. Her clothes were completely removed. And she said how, how it works is, um, you know... Um, each guy has their way with you. They're kind of the guys are all standing in a big group, and they're some are watching, some are talking, some are laughing, and and uh, one after another, she was raped. She said she was looking up at the moon, and um, as she's staring up at the moon, she she just said, "I cannot understand how you, a holy God, can look upon such an unholy act." And she said in her heart, it was just like, God, why are you not rescuing me? Why are you doing nothing? Well, she said by about one or two o'clock, she was walked back down the mountain, half carried because she was in so much pain. The leader of the gang actually did put some men's clothes back on her, but she said her feet were still bare, so they were very, very badly cut by the time she got down to the bottom of the mountain. Uh, she said there were, there were perhaps a couple of moments of God's mercy. Um, as they neared the highway, uh, a truckload of um, men uh, drove past on two or three occasions, other gangs, and they're yelling out in pigeon, that I'll use the English words, where's the Indian girl? Where's the Indian girl? And... Um, she knew that if this went on any longer, she would die. And she thought that when actually in the process of all this, you know, am I going to die? God, uh, have I forgiven everyone? Am I ready to go be with you? Am I, am I ready to die? Um, but as those truckloads went past, the leader of the gang said, get hide in the grass. And he said that every time so that they didn't know where she was. Although she added, she thinks the culture is such that the gangs don't share their rape victims or their, their women. Um, they walked all the way to the edge of that area to where there is um, some police housing. And um, they said to her, just go and bang on the door. And um, so, um, believe it or not, she actually said to them, um, thank you, God bless you. And the leader actually said, God bless you, sister. And she actually thinks to this, because she used to read, you know, regularly girls are raped and killed in the outskirts, and she said she thinks the only reason they didn't kill her is because the leader felt a measure of respect because she, he considered her actually 
a holy go. Well, she went to the police, banged on the door, collapsed at the doorstep, and um, they found out her details and her parents were contacted and she was uh, taken to Cairns Hospital in Australia. She was in such a bad state, she was in hospital for two months. She said, believe it or not, I didn't, I was able to forgive those men. I didn't actually harbour any unforgiveness towards them. But the one who I thought loved me, the one who I thought would be my protector, the one that I worshipped, he did nothing. I could not forgive God. When she was released from hospital, she um, obviously reunited with her husband, has been visiting and stuff, and went back to live with her husband. But he didn't want her anymore. He felt that she was soiled and he divorced her. She said um, not long after this, she started working as a teacher in a mining town. And she said, well, her words, she said, I just went wild. She became like this crazy party girl. And uh, she said, sometimes I would be walking past a church and I could hear the singing and I, I felt drawn to go in. But I could not bring myself to walk through those doors. She said, I would pick up my Bible sometimes. And um, I'd read a verse that had a promise in it. And I'd say, well, that wasn't true for me. And she would throw it. She said, it was some time before I could really read the Bible. And eventually when I could, I could only read the book of Job. And for about two or three years, I only read the book of Job. And she said there, within that book, I could see how this man suffered terribly. And, and so many of the words that he would say, you know, to the other man or to God, I could so, so relate to them. And I felt something similar had happened in my life, where basically um, in the heavenly realm or whatever, Satan was given, given permission to do whatever against me except take my life. Well, it was a long journey for her. But in the end, Darshni believed that God may speak to her like he does to Job at the end of the book of Job. After Job has accused God, certainly, of doing wrong, and we might say understandably so, the Lord said to Job 40, four, first four verses, Job 40, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job said to the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. In her story, she quotes these verses, Darshni, 42 to 4 and 5. You said, listen now, words of Job. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And Darshni says that um, it's not that she, she knew God quite closely, actually, but she said, like Job, it's as, if, as did Job. Um, but Job there is saying, look, my, my ears have heard, of you, heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
And Darcy is saying that she felt that something she went to another another whole level in her relationship with God. Uh, by the way, I think Crossway South was that was her first step back into church. So that phone call, which was a very long one, was extremely important for her. Final application, friends, number six. We must not keep a record of wrongs against God. We must not keep a record of wrongs against God. You've heard a story where you'd say, uh, certainly for her, she, more than anyone actually that I've personally sat with and talked with, um, I haven't met anyone face to face like that that I think has, would have every reason in the world to have a record of wrongs against God. And of course against those men as well. But she doesn't. She's been set free. It took years, but she's been set free from it completely. And I guess my challenge is for you and I, yes, I can almost guarantee some of us at least carry a record of wrongs against people or against God or against ourselves. We've got to let them go, friends. It's not doing you any good. The fact that Jesus is so strong on this it helps us realise this must be extremely important for us and extremely important from the Lord's perspective. Let's read this verse again. 1 Corinthians 13.5 Love keeps no record of wrongs. 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 But I know you need the Lord's supernatural help. You can't do it yourself. We're going to finish uh, the service here. We'll finish with a final song, but I want to open it up because some of you might be thinking, hey, I need prayer. And you might be also thinking, hey, I need to go on a journey and uh, perhaps face some of these emotional realities, the damaged emotions of your life. Remember, David Siemens, healing of memories. David Siemens, um, the healing of wounded emotions, damaged emotions. Let me ask you these questions, friends. Are you holding anything against God? Or are you holding something against a family member? Someone in the workplace? At university or school? At a previous church? At this church? I want to encourage you to come and receive God's grace today. Be prayed for. Be set free. Um, Tom will be available to pray for you. Uh, Mareka will be available to pray for you. Sue uh, will be available to pray for you. There's people who can pray, people who are uh, gifted in prayer ministry. Do come forward in this final song if you'd like some prayer.